from CAFE. Welcome to Stay Tuned, live from the Town Hall in New York City. I'm Preet Bharara. The Mueller story now is almost completely unknown. Who are these people? What do they do? How did they investigate? No one knows. That's Jeffrey Tubin. He's my colleague at CNN, where he's the chief legal analyst. He's also been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1993, and he's written seven books on the justice system. On top of that, he was once a federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of New York. In front of a packed house at the town hall in New York, I speak with him about Trump and the rule of law, Kavanaugh and the court, and why the Mueller investigation never leaks. And we end with a lightning round. That's coming up. Stay tuned. So today you're going to hear my interview with Jeff Tubin. 1,400 people came to hear two lawyers talk. If you were there, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for being so energized and engaged. Next, we head to Washington, D.C. for a show with the host of Meet the Press, Chuck Todd, on November 15th, right after the midterms. I'm excited to see everyone at the iconic Lincoln Theater. If you don't have tickets yet, please visit cafe.com slash tour. That's cafe.com slash T-O-U-R. Support for our live show is brought to you by the new Showtime documentary series, Enemies, the President, Justice, and the FBI. That series is produced by Alex Gibney, who was a guest here on Stay Tuned. Alex directs one of the episodes of Enemies, an episode that I'm actually in. Anyway, thanks to Showtime for being a sponsor, and I'll see you in D.C. We'll be back with a live show in a moment, but first I wanted to address a couple of items of news from the last week. This question comes from Twitter user Jim Euchre about alleged pipe bomber Cesar Sayok. Jim writes, I was surprised that he was charged with assault but not attempted murder. Director Ray wasn't asked about that. Isn't attempted murder of a government official a federal crime? Hashtag AskPreet. Good question, Jim. And, and related to that, another thing that I've been hearing from people is why Sayok uh, hasn't yet been charged with domestic terrorism and a whole bunch of other charges that could be brought. Why haven't they been brought yet? The first thing to keep in mind is when you have a fast-moving situation and you have somebody who is brought into custody, the most important thing is to get charges on the record through a criminal complaint that doesn't require going to a grand jury and waiting for a grand jury to be around. All you need is a magistrate judge to approve those charges. And you want to have good and tough charges in that document to allow you to hold the person and make sure that person gets detained if they're a danger. In this case, obviously, the person was a danger. You have a certain period of time after the filing of a criminal complaint, and we did the same whether it was the Chelsea bomber when I was U.S. attorney in 2017 or Faisal Shahzad who tried to blow up Times Square, you do a fairly quick and dirty complaint. You want to make sure it's all correct, accurate. You put in some serious charges, and then usually by the time you have to bring an indictment when you go in front of a grand jury, you have studied the case more. You've had an opportunity to look at the guy's comms, the guy's communications, interviewed other witnesses to bring you know a more plentiful indictment. So there are other charges that I thought you know, will probably be added, including the use, you know, things relating to the use of a destructive device, a statute called 924C that we have used in the past in these kinds of situations. To bring certain kinds of cases involving terrorism, you need to show that there is an affiliation with a designated terrorist organization, which you don't have here. It looks like this person was acting alone. There is a domestic terrorism statute. And as I look at it again and refresh my recollection about it, because it's been a while since I was in that business, it does look like we meet the definition here. So I would expect that to be added. But it doesn't, it doesn't need to be the charge in the initial document. Uh, and there may be other charges as well. So that's, that's the reason why you probably don't see it yet. 
Hey, priest, this is Calvin from New Hampshire. Um, the shooting at the synagogue clearly seems like a hate crime. So why do we treat hate crimes differently from other crimes when we don't criminalize hate speech? Thanks so much. Look forward to your answer. Look, America is an interesting place where we don't criminalize hate speech. And you're allowed to say lots and lots of terrible things because we have a robust First Amendment. Most other modern countries, democratic countries, don't have that. They actually criminalize hate speech itself because aspersions on groups they feel are undermining to their dignity and undermining of democracy and civil society. On the other hand, bad conduct, whether it's assault or murder or arson or shootings or the mailing of bombs, is criminalized in this country. And I think, you know, even though we don't have hate speech criminal statutes, that if you engage in a certain kind of conduct because of someone's religion, because of someone's race, because of someone's gender, because of someone's sexual orientation, that is a worse harm in the same way, not quite the same thing, but in a similar fashion that we have a, a category of crimes called terrorism. And so if there's an intent to terrorize the civilian population or to influence public policy, which is the language used in some terrorism statutes, there's something worse about that than just a random shooting. If you're engaging in a shooting or in the mailing of bombs to try to intimidate people uh, who are trying to live in, in civil society, we say that's worse. And hate crimes are a form of terrorism. So the, the tragedy that we had in the synagogue, it's horrible and terrible, and your, your heart goes out for the families of the people who were lost that day. But if it had been some random, disturbed, disgruntled employee of the synagogue, that's still a terrible tragedy. But it doesn't cause... Jewish people everywhere to have to worry in the same way, when I go to pray, am I going to be shot by an anti-Semite? Because that's the attitude in the country now. And the pain that's, that's visited upon, and not just Jewish people, but everyone who cares about, about freedom and safety, the pain that's visited by this kind of a crime is much deeper and much more damaging, and I think it should be punished harsher. This next question comes from Twitter, and it's on an issue that's gotten a lot of attention in the last day or two, from Amy H. For Good, writes, could you please tell us where the legal system stands on the issue of birthright citizenship, or if the president has any grounds for or is able to get rid of this right? I would love to hear your thoughts. Hashtag AskPreet. So like a lot of people, I heard with great consternation an interview that Donald Trump did with Axios, one of the reporters with Jonathan Swan, who's been a guest on the show where Donald Trump renewed something that he has said before and said that he wants to, by executive order, remove the right of birthright citizenship, which basically, in the view of, of myself and of virtually every scholar who has looked at the issue, would violate the 14th Amendment. For those of you who don't have a pocket constitution handy, I'll read to you the relevant one sentence from the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, Section 1, Clause 1, says, quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. Now, there is a small amount of controversy, not large, but very small, about what it means to be subject to the jurisdiction thereof, subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. But essentially, the Supreme Court, for ever, basically, since the adoption of the 14th Amendment, has made it clear that it believes that if you have been born in the U.S., whether the parents who were also born in the United States and are natural-born citizens or legal permanent residents or even people who are undocumented and don't have legal status, that you are nonetheless a citizen of the United States. That's your birthright. 
So even if you think, and I don't think this way, even if you think that birthright citizenship is a bad idea, that's what the Constitution says. Now, the president has indicated in this interview that he thinks he can undo that. I know of no reasonable person who thinks that's true. In fact, Paul Ryan, who doesn't say much these days in contravention of the dictates of Donald Trump, himself said just yesterday that you can't do this by executive order. I don't think you can actually do it by legislation either, although Lindsey Graham has now suggested that he's going to introduce legislation to do just that. Just to give you a couple of examples of how how wide the belief is that the 14th Amendment cannot be undone, A, by an executive order, and B, that it means what it says, there's a pretty good read in the Washington Post this week, an op-ed written by former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal, co-authored by George Conway, who's a pretty smart lawyer and who's married to Kellyanne Conway, debunk this idea uh, that the 14th Amendment means what Donald Trump says it means. There's another person by the name of Jim Ho, who just recently was appointed by Trump to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and who once upon a time was chief counsel to the very conservative Senator John Cornyn on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that's where I met Jim, and he's a friend of mine. Interesting sidelight. Uh, Jim Ho, last name spelled H-O, sends holiday cards every year. I still get one, the front of which is always the same. Ho, ho, ho. Anyway, Jim, before he became a distinguished judge in Texas, has written on the 14th Amendment and birthright citizenship, and also takes a view contrary to what Donald Trump now espouses. So there's a broad range of people who disagree with Donald Trump. And I think for that reason, the way I view his statement is one a week before the election to divide the country, to stoke controversy, because immigration is a hot button topic that he thinks will galvanize his base. I don't think he has any ability to do it. And if he did, it would be challenged immediately. And I think he would lose. But just as with the caravan and the fear mongering, he thinks it's a good political ploy, and I don't think it's well-based in law or policy. This final question comes in a tweet from The Dextrosity. Great handle. The Dextrosity writes, I'm basically praying that Preet Bharara will do an all-Jacob Wool episode of Hashtag Ask Preet this week. Well, no such luck. Jacob Wool doesn't deserve it, and listeners don't deserve it either. What I believe you're referring to is the recent news that connects this 20-year-old sort of Republican activist, Jacob Wall, who gets a lot of attention for reasons that I'm not really clear about, connecting him to a developing, odd, bizarre, and cynical conspiracy theory, which involves another Republican activist named Jack Berkman, who apparently, and we don't know this yet, and I like to be cautious until we know more facts, but that he was seeking to pay people to falsely implicate special counsel, Robert Mueller, in sexual misconduct going back many years. So as we tape this at lunchtime on Wednesday, uh, we don't have a lot of information, but Peter Carr, the spokesperson for the special counsel, who basically has the easiest job on earth because he never spokes, that guy, he actually uttered a comment about how they referred these allegations when they found out about them to the FBI. So the FBI is now looking at whether or not someone engaged in criminal conduct in trying to frame Bob Mueller for sexual assault some years ago. It sounds like nonsense to me, and it sounds like something very cynical a week before an election, but I guess some people have no bottom. Stay Tuned with Preet is brought to you by Burrow. Burrow makes clever, uncompromising furniture for modern life at home. And as the days get shorter and the weather gets colder, you know you're going to be spending more time at home and on that couch. 
Make sure that's time well spent with a sofa from Burrow. Ordering a sofa from Burrow is fast and easy. Customize it online and get it delivered to your door. The whole thing comes in normal boxes and assembly is simple. Burrow's pillows have soft, hand-woven fabric covers. They're ethically manufactured with fair trade and good weave certification, so no stress there either. And once you're easy to order, easy to assemble, easy on your ethics sofa comes, you can burrow into those comfortable pillows and scream out all your anxieties about the world. Or, you know, cuddle your dog. Or just relax at the end of a long day. The world can be a pretty stressful place. You know, you listen to me and my guests every week. With Burrow, at least you can get a great sofa without a hassle. So get your living room ready for fall and save $75 on a new sofa by visiting burrow.com slash preet for $75 off your order. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash preet to get $75 off your order. Thanks again to Burrow for supporting the show. You know what's not smart? So many things. One of those not-so-smart things is the way hiring used to be. Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. Why read bad resumes? Now more than ever, we know the importance of surrounding yourself with the best people. Luckily, there's a smarter way to hire at ZipRecruiter.com Preet. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com P-R-E-E-T. everybody. Good evening. Welcome. We have a full house. Here at the town hall, which kind of amazes me. Um, you all know that there's no singing or dancing, right? <laughs> it's like just two lawyers going to be sitting here. Uh, we have a great, great guest today, Jeffrey Tubin, and a great show. I have a lot of friends in the audience. There are, there are even people from high school who came all the way from New Jersey to be here. If, where, are my, where are my high school people? <laughs> I was not very popular in high school. <laughs> and it was a very small high school. But my yearbook page is totally good. Um, so a lot has been going on in my life, not that you care, but you're a captive audience, and I will tell you. Uh, so I, I spent much of the last year, year and a half, uh, writing a book about justice, about how I think justice is done, how sometimes it's not done. I understand that, that uh, although it seems early, in the film version of the book, Paul Giamatti... <laughs> Paul Giamatti will be playing me so I can be deracialized even in my own book. <laughs> so, a lot has happened in the last year with the podcast. We had a birthday, we, we turned one year old, which is kind of cool. 
there's been a lot of um, attention to the podcast. We have amazing guests every week. Lots and lots of people listen to it. The support, that, just you know, kidding aside, the fact that people in this room and many other people uh, take the time to listen, who care about it, I really appreciate it. So I want to thank you all for your support. So among the many milestones that I've experienced without subpoena power <laughs> while being a podcast host, you know, some things are outsized because uh, one day a few weeks ago, this happened. With a knack for explaining complex legal issues with simple language, stay tuned with Preet, Preet being this ex-U.S. attorney, Jonathan. O-M-G. The pod was a Jeopardy question. Now, when important things in my life have happened before professionally, I have gotten emails and texts from people. When we put a major terrorist away for life, one or two people would text me. Maybe. When I was mentioned on Jeopardy, my inbox was full. But so let's, let's take stock of how fraught a moment this is. My main man, Jonathan, is in the hole. He's down $400. It's a $1,000 question. He can go from being in the red to being in the black. And I'm thinking, I really hope he knows that. <laughs> Me. So let's see, um, let's see how he did. With a knack for explaining complex legal issues with simple language, stay tuned with Preet. Preet being this ex-U.S. attorney. Jonathan. Who is Barara? Good. Touchdown! <laughs> Do you know how great that was? <laughs> not, just, not just because he got the answer right, but because he perfectly stuck the landing by saying my name perfectly. <laughs> Barara. Great moment, I think, for America. Now let's get to your questions. Dear Preet, these are all from you folks in the audience today. Some of your handwriting sucks. <laughs> Dear Preet, is this Trump cell phone thing a big deal? From Catherine, I presume what you're talking about is the report in the New York Times by Maggie Haberman and someone else that describes how Donald Trump maintains a number of cell phones, I think he has a couple of government cell phones, that have some of their capacities incapacitated but then he can't let go of a third cell phone that does not have the same protections, and that basically, at will, the article says, that Donald Trump is being eavesdropped on by the Chinese in a way that allows them to understand who his friends are uh, and what kinds of arguments influence him. And so they can lead you know, sort of a simultaneous eavesdropping, spying, and also lobbying effort to get their points across. Trump himself, apparently... <laughs> in his vociferous, odd, 280-character manner, uh, denied it and said that it was false and also boring. <laughs> Which, you know, every once in a while, if a defense lawyer said, the allegations are boring, <laughs> not guilty. <laughs> 
did, I didn't, it, didn't, it didn't work that way usually. Maybe in the Eastern District of New York, we'll have to ask Jeff. But no. Look, I think it is a big deal, and it's a big deal for a lot of reasons. It's a big deal, number one, just in terms of the care that a president takes in guard, you know, safeguarding our secrets. It's a big deal because of the hypocrisy with which that same president makes comments and statements about other people, up to and including leading and embracing chance of lock her up about someone else who presumably had some security problem. And when you're a president who has you know, sort of casually given classified information to visiting Russians in the White House, and you don't take care to listen to the instructions of your closest aides, uh, who, by the way, if you trust the story and credit the story, which I do, have decided clearly that it's so outrageous and harmful, with a caveat, but so outrageous and harmful that they are leaking the story about the fact that their boss, the leader of the somewhat free world, uh, is cavalierly talking on a cell phone that can be intercepted easily by Chinese and perhaps Russians also, that's a huge deal. The only sort of silver lining, if you read the article, which is both gratifying and also horrifying, is that his aides don't seem that concerned or as concerned as they might be because they feel like his knowledge and the depth of his expertise on some of these things <laughs> is so minimal and non-detail oriented. They're like, you know, like, how, much, how much are they really hearing? So I think, it's, I think it's horrifying, I think it's terrible. I think a message is being sent by folks in the administration, but it is not boring. Uh, Dear Magic 8-Ball, will we survive if the midterms go red? Just thinking this is the longest two years ever. Yeah, we'll survive. I, I do have a worry, I don't wanna be too negative. I, I'll just say this. Let's not worry about that until it happens, except to say, worry about it enough to go vote. There's nothing more important, I think, than having a proper balance of power. And that's why I've had on the podcast from time to time people like Max Boot and Steve Schmidt and others who are still conservatives but who have left the Republican Party and who have been advocating. I think Bill Kristol has done the same. I think George Will has done the same. These are people that that if you're my age, you've read them for years and years and years and often were infuriated by the ways they talked about policy because maybe you thought about things differently. And those people who infuriated progressives for a long time about what they thought about tax policy or even immigration policy or national security policy are now saying that what we need the most in America is a check and a balance on what I believe also to be an out-of-control president. I don't know if he's a Republican or not, but I think it's out of control and it bends towards authoritarianism in various ways. And if we don't see a change in the House or the Senate, then my worry is, not to be too depressing, my worry is that those few Republicans who don't like what the president does, who believe in decency over partisanship, who believe in the country over partisanship, that they will be quieted even further. And they will say, well, there's nothing good in it for me and my future campaign prospects if I defy the president, because look, everyone thought there was gonna be a blue wave, it didn't happen. So in some ways, it's more important from my perspective to avoid the negative of having 
it looked like there was a ratification of what this president has been doing and a supine Congress has been doing, then even the positive the benefits of, of better things that might happen if there's a, a, a change of power. So I think it's incredibly important. Will we survive? Yes. Uh, but I don't like what it looks like on the other side of that. Last question. I know you try to play the reasonable, level-headed guy. <laughs> but do you just rant when off air? <laughs> That's from Joanna. Um, yes. All the time. Tubin's like, when do I get to come out? And the answer is, in a moment. <laughs> so you all, you, I'm sure you all know my guest, Jeffrey Tubin, who is as smart as they come, as articulate as they come, as well-versed in the law, in politics, and especially the Supreme Court as they come. He's a staff writer with The New Yorker. He's the chief legal analyst at CNN, which I think maybe means he's my boss. Uh, he's a best-selling author. He's, he's written seven books. Uh, one of them, The Run of His Life, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, which is quite popular. A book called The Nine, about the Supreme Court. He, he's working on an eighth book, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit, about the Mueller investigation. Seems premature, but I'll ask him about it. Uh, and he even won an Emmy Award in 2000 for his coverage of the Elian Gonzalez case. A true gentleman and a scholar, ladies and gentlemen, Jeffrey Tubin. First, we had a whole discussion. Mm -hmm. I said to Jeff, just by way of FYI, I will not be wearing a tie. <laughs> and he responded, this, he responded to my text, this is useful information. <laughs> Which it was. Which to me means he wasn't planning to wear a tie. And then when I told him I wasn't wearing one, the useful information was, I will wear one and show you up. Exactly. Is that true? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a very serious time. And all these people are here because they care about what's going on in the country. And I presume they listen to what, all the smart things you say on CNN and the smart things you write in The New Yorker and in your books. Bombs have been mailed to significant people in the country. Is it okay to laugh and have a sense of humor and have a good time? Say something hopeful or funny or something. Of course it's okay to laugh. I mean, you know, there's, there's always been laughter. I mean, the Soviet Union was a much worse place to live than the United States is today. And, you know, jokes were an enormous part of life in the Soviet Union. I don't think we're near that yet, but do you read the tweets? Just the capitalization is funny. <laughs> and, and, you know, that alone. So, you know, you got to find joy where you can. And um, so, yeah, the answer is yes, you have permission to laugh. Should we always laugh, given how serious it is? The news business thrives on black comedy and, you know, finding the humor in the worst. And it just reminds me, you know, I was a summer intern for Carol Bellamy, who was president of the city council. And I had to, just to say how long ago this was, I had to deliver by hand a press release to the Daily News newsroom. And... It just happened to be the day that Thurman Munson, the great Yankees catcher, 
died. And I mean, the news had just come in. And I happened to be standing in the newsroom when one guy, you know, said to another, he said, hey, did you hear about Munson? He just got traded to the Angels. Uh, And I thought, that's like, I want to be in that business, you know? I I can't believe I remembered that, but it's true. Um, And then said it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But we used to both work in places... U.S. attorney's offices that were interesting in the following respect, right? I worked on organized crime cases. We had homicide cases. And you see the worst that humanity has to offer. You see evil in that job every day. And yet, I've never been in a place, including comedic environments, where there is more laughter and more sense of humor than I experienced at the U.S. attorney's office for the Southern District. And I know the Eastern District was the same. People are surprised to hear that there's a lot of joking that goes on in those serious places, but I think it's almost a necessity of the job that when you're doing work that's incredibly serious, you can't take yourself too seriously. Otherwise, not only do you not have a good time, not only is it a bad environment, not only is it a bad culture, but you don't have perspective on life. In jobs where you have to have perspective on life and proportionality, a sense of humor is essential. It's true, and and also the other thing about you know, dealing with criminals on on a day-to-day basis is one of the things you realize is how bad most of them are at their jobs. <laughs> and, and, you know, you did white-collar cases and, you know, I, I did some white-collar cases. One of the things you would always get in a defense argument was the defense lawyer would always say, you know, of course he didn't endorse the check in his own name. That would have made him too easy to get caught. But they would always do stupid things. And thank God. Thank God for that. Thank yes. God, right? That leads me to think about two things. One is, that's a defense that sometimes this president's lawyers put forward and say, well, if he was really going to obstruct, would he have tweeted about it? Yeah, sometimes people do that. Well, I mean, you know, you know, I, I grew up as a kid you know, following Watergate. And Watergate was the formative news story of my youth. And I followed it, you know, I was a huge baseball fan and I followed it like I followed the Mets. And the great mystery of Watergate was, like, what was on the tapes? What was Nixon really thinking? And ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled nine to nothing that the tapes had to be released. June 23rd, 1972 tape, where Nixon says tell the CIA to tell the FBI to ease off on the investigation, you know, creates this fake cover story, the so-called smoking gun tape. Here, the president admits it to Lester Holt the next day <laughs> that, that, you know, he fired Comey because of the Russia thing. I mean, it has a very serious implication that even though, as far as I'm concerned, that was a confession the fact that it was done in public and the fact that, you know, we've heard it for so long now, it sort of lost its sting, but it's still a confession. And I think that's what makes this, one of the many things that makes the Trump administration's misdeeds so peculiar in addition to so harrowing is that they don't even try to pretend they didn't happen. Is it your view that slam dunk case Donald Trump obstructed justice? Well, look, no. I mean, you have to talk about slam dunk. A case for what? Obstruction. Let's start with obstruction. Well, but, I mean, I do believe that 
the Justice Department opinion is right that you cannot indict a sitting president. I think that's a correct view. So I don't think there will be any criminal case against Donald well, Trump. Is it a clearly impeachable case? Well, then, you know, once you start getting into a question of what's impeachable, that is much more a political question than a legal question. I mean, you, 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 you know, Gerald Ford, when he was in the House of Representatives, was involved in a fortunately stillborn attempt to impeach Justice William O. Douglas. But he said something very you know, memorable about impeachment. He said an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives thinks it is. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I I mean, impeachment was designed as much as a political check as a legal check. So when you say, is that an impeachable offense, you know, would a Republican House of Representatives vote to impeach uh, for that? Of course not. Would a Democratic House impeach him? Well, you know, I just did a piece on this in The New Yorker. Nancy Pelosi, Jerry Nadler, who will be the chairman of the Judiciary Committee if the Democrats retake, they are not going to push impeachment unless 67 senators are ready to vote to remove him, which is inconceivable. So, so no, I don't think that is impeachable or a crime that will be prosecuted, but I still think firing James Comey was an obstruction of justice by the president. So if he were a governor, as opposed to a president, and you were the prosecutor, you would bring that case? Absolutely. Absolutely. The the, the law is clear that the president had the right to fire James Comey. He had the right to fire you. Your former professor, Alan Dershowitz, basically says that that fact alone... Oh my God, he gets hissed. I know. That... How did you do in his class? Uh, I did well. Not great, but well. (laughs) (laughs) He he basically argues, I think, and I think you think incorrectly, that the mere fact that someone has constitutional authority to do a thing means that engaging in that act can't be a crime. And that's clearly incorrect. I, I think it's clear. No, like just for example, as the example I have used in debating with him is if, you know, Joe Smith walked into the president's office with an attache case full of cash and said, fire Preet Bharara and I'll give you this $10 million, and he did it, that would be a crime. Oh, my God. Is that what you think That's happened? That's what happened. That's what happened. I, I was saving it for my book, but now it's blown. <laughs> Can we take a step to the side for a moment? Uh-huh. These mail bombs. The last couple of days, and we both work... Uh-huh. Uh, some of the time at CNN, and so what happened there and other places is, I think, very terrible. But immediately, you have started to see people state that, well, this is a hoax. This is being perpetrated by liberals to change the narrative and because it's so ineptly done and none of the bombs exploded. Rush Limbaugh apparently was saying the fact that no one died, to his mind, means that this is something perpetrated by folks to garner sympathy for the left, and they're using that same argument about ineptitude to suggest that. You know, I, I take this personally. You know, I've worked at CNN since 2002, and, you know, I've worked at the Time Warner Center since it opened. This was a bomb in our workplace. It was an actual bomb in our workplace. And, you know, I think if, if things had gone somewhat differently there would be probably one of the workers in the mailroom who didn't have a hand or two. That is such 
a chilling and disturbing thought. This is not people speaking inappropriately. This is not ugly racial invective. This, this is violent crime. And, you know, I don't know enough about explosives to know why these bombs didn't go off. But based on what I have heard from our colleagues and from, you know, just other news reports, these were not fake bombs. They were actual bombs. And fortunately, none of them have gone off. But, you know, the seriousness of this and the scariness of it is, I mean, is, is chilling. From a journalistic perspective, do you think, is it hard, because we have this experience all the time, right? There's a breaking story. You might be in the studio, other people. And what the anchors want to know is who you think did it. And when will they be caught? And what do you think the motive was? And I get that. But it's very difficult if those are the questions when you don't know. I mean, I get tired sometimes of telling Walt Blitzer, I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, I beat, that, that's beat why the hell you, out of That's me. why you're only the senior legal analyst <laughs> and I'm the chief legal analyst. Okay, boss. Uh-huh. How, how have your predictions worked out, Jeffrey? <laughs> so uh-huh. it, it becomes... But there's this pressure... To predict and to say, would it be, be maybe it's not possible because there's so many 24-hour cable news networks. Is there a way in which we can have people just shut up for a little bit before predicting? Well, I mean, I, I always say that, you know, the, the three words you're never allowed to say on cable news are, I don't know. Oh, that's, uh, my contract is not getting Yeah, that is, but, but um, there is a lot of speculation that goes on. And, and look, I try not to do it. I'm sure I, I do more than I should. But, I mean, even today, I, I noticed, um, I, I was on Situation Room before, before I came here, and uh, Wolf asked, I forgot one of my colleagues, he said, why do you think the FBI isn't disclosing more information? And to me, it was just so obvious. It's like, because they're just investigating it. I mean, they are looking into what happened here. I mean, give them a day right, right. to, um, you know, chase this down. I don't really, and, and, and you know, look, I, I am as aggressive a reporter as anyone, and we can talk about my abject failures to learn what Mueller's doing. But, but you know, the notion that some things should be allowed to be investigated in, in, in private is a real one, though I am sympathetic with the, with the journalistic urge to find out everything right away. So you had a great career as a prosecutor? It was then you good. Just, okay. Yeah. Modesty is good. No, no. And then you became a journalist. Do you miss it, the other job? You know, the answer to that is a little, but, you know, being a grown-up means you have to make some choices. I mean, I love trying cases. I really... And, and when I... See, this is like when you know you're turned into an old fart when you begin sentences. When I was an assistant, when I was an assistant U.S. attorney, there were more trials. And one of the interesting things about the way the federal system in particular has evolved is trials have almost disappeared. And I was in AUSA for three years. I had, uh, I think, 11 trials, which was average. It was, like, not small, but it was not a lot. Today, you don't have 11 trials in a career for 10 years. And so I was really fortunate in that. I had a great time. But, you know, I like what I do. So that's the choice I made. It's also been a long time. God, 25 years. So you have a legal background, and you talk about the law and write about the law. Some people don't. Uh, Nina Totenberg writes and speaks about the law, and she doesn't. Is there some special trick, especially in, in the current moment, in explaining what goes on in legal cases and in constitutional crises and what goes on in the court that you rely on? Like, do you have principles of how 
you explain things to thoughtful people. The great value of having a legal background is you know what's not important. Conversely, you know what is important. I mean, I often see my colleagues with a document, like a complaint or an indictment. And if you have the background of having read and written indictments and complaints, you can tell what's important and you know what's the boilerplate and you know what's not boilerplate. And that, to me, is the, the, the sort of technical gift of what a legal background has done for me is to be able to sort out what what You can separate the wheat from the chaff. Look, I'll give you another example that I'm reminded of when I first started doing this kind of thing. I got asked a lot of questions after the special counsel subpoenaed, I don't know, I forgot who it was, but they issued a subpoena, and everyone lost their minds. Right. This um, represents a deepening of the investigation, a widening of the investigation. What do you think it means? Of course he issued a subpoena (laughs) to this entity that's related to what they were already doing, It'd be shocking malpractice if they hadn't issued the subpoena. But like you say, most people were celebrating what they thought was the deep importance of it because it was an actual action that they could report to their listeners or to their, to their readers when it didn't have a lot of significance. That's true, but you know there are moments when something may not seem as important as, and it really is. And, I, and, and the classic demonstration of that is the firing of James Comey. The, the cabinet serves at the president's sufferance. You know, you can, the president can fire Betsy DeVos, the secretary of education, tomorrow. And <laughs> If you want more applause. I knew that was coming. Just go down the list of cabinets. Yeah, right yeah that's right. But, you know, the FBI director has a term of 10 years. And he, can, he or she can only be fired, you know, for good cause. The whole purpose of the 10-year term, which, you know, by, by definition spans several presidencies, is to keep the FBI director at least somewhat insulated from politics. And, you know, one of the things I pride myself on, at, you know, being in cable news all this time is that, like, I don't shout, I don't get hysterical, I'm not like a screamer like some people are on TV. But when, when Trump fired Comey last year, I, you know, ramped up the outrage because it was outrageous. And that was even before he confessed to obstruction of justice. Um, it, I mean, just the notion that he would fire an FBI director out of peak, out of, now we know, to obstruct an investigation of him, it was outrageous then, it was outrageous now, I think it's illegal. And so, you know, there was an example, I think, of my legal background making something seem even more important than it might otherwise seem. Do you think that part of why you were so outraged was that one of the professed reasons given for the firing of Jim Comey was this memo that was prepared by the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein that suggested that the President was firing Jim Comey not because of anything having to do with the Russia investigation, but rather for his mistreatment of Hillary Clinton, even though, just to make it more softball, even though to this very day Donald Trump um, warms to the crowd who chants lock her up, It is true that the pretext offered was so transparently false 
that it did add to the outrageousness of it. Because, I mean, again, you know, again, one of the great things about being a journalist is, you know, the, the, the phrase, you can't make this shit up. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, the fact that Donald Trump claimed that he fired James Comey because he was too mean to Hillary Clinton, <laughs> given the way that campaign was conducted and given the way his rallies to this day continue that way, I mean, even I thought, he didn't have the moxie to do that. Can we talk about Rod Rosenstein for a second? And a, yeah. a sort of a theory I have, maybe it's totally false, that I've been thinking about lately, and I may have mentioned it on the podcast before, but I'm not sure. And, and it relates to what I also want to get into, which is Brett Kavanaugh. Does Rod Rosenstein like <laughs> beer, too? <laughs> yeah. I like beer. I still like beer. Don't. F- <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, we'll get to that. This is the nighttime version. It's a podcast. Version. I can say anything. No, it's all right. I have some questions about the Devil's Triangle, too, coming up. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, you mentioned your yearbook. It's, I have a lightning round, literally. It's yeah, your lightning round. Because I, 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 I hadn't thought. It's so weird during that whole I didn't think of it. And, and just it made me think about my yearbook entry. Only could be condemned for extreme pretentiousness. <laughs> so I, I know Rod... For a long time, not you know, incredibly well, but we were colleagues in different offices, worked in parallel on some cases, and fought about cases in full disclosure. So he does this thing, and he's roundly criticized, not just in the press, but by his former colleagues, after having developed a reputation that clearly meticulously cultivated, because reputations are cultivated, I don't care who you are, how pure you are, people cultivate their, their reputations, of being sort of nonpartisan or bipartisan, served in you know, multiple administrations of different parties, and that he's a you know, lawyer's lawyer, a prosecutor's prosecutor, whatever other redundancy the possessive you want to use. And he found himself you know, as part of a huge controversy, and his personal reputation and legacy were at stake. And then within days, it wasn't that long, where professionals who he had admired and who had admired him I mean, I wrote an op-ed myself, which I tempered a little bit. The only op-ed I wrote during that time about the firing of Jim Comey and Rod Rosenstein's participation in it. And then what does he do? He's like, all right, so this is terrible. It's bad for me. It's bad for my reputation. It's bad for my legacy. Everything I thought about how I was perceived in the legal community, which is a community that people care about, is now shot to hell. Okay, what do I do about it? Mueller. How much does that factor in? personal thinking about legacy and reputation and ego versus purely what the sort of lofty law requires. It, you, you are so right about that. I mean, I, I had some dealings with Rod Rosenstein very separately as, as a journalist, and he sort of looks like Clark Kent, and he kind of acts <laughs> like Clark Kent. That far, right. There is sort of an aggressive dweebiness about him. <laughs> but... He is a savvy guy, and I think he, he, he got in over his head, and, and that ridiculous memo about, you know, James Comey's misconduct to Hillary Clinton, you know, I think some of the, that story is still yet to be told, I hope by me. I'm not sure he even knew that was going to be released publicly. Right. You know, he was humiliated by this, and... 
he then took revenge that will be historic because whatever else, I mean, I remember saying it at the time, if you were to go through the 330 million people in the United States and pick the single most damaging person you could have picked to be special counsel, Robert Mueller would have been number one. I mean, now it it, it is, now there is a hypothesis or, or a scenario where that could rebound to, down to Trump's benefit. Because if Mueller somehow comes up with something that is less than earth-shaking, the one thing you know, Trump's critics will not be able to say was, well, this was a whitewash because you know, Robert Mueller is nothing, is just like Ken Starr. You know, no one thinks that. I mean, this guy has the single best reputation of anyone in the American legal community. He did. He did, and I agree with that. Yeah. But it shows me that anyone in America can be swift-boated because you take Newt Gingrich, who on the day... Newt Gingrich, on the day that Mueller was appointed, in this famous tweet he sent, um, said, oh, everyone... Basically, I'm paraphrasing, everyone can relax. Bob Mueller has a great reputation. Until it became politically expedient to both put off Democratic demands for various things and also to ingratiate yourself with the sitting president, which lots of people like to do, Newt Gingrich began to sing a different tune. And to me, at least, one of the most depressing things about all of this is the degree to which no one's perfect and you don't put anyone on a pedestal, and Bob Mueller included. Although, you know, he's a pretty impressive guy and a patriotic guy and a courageous guy and was loved by all sides before this especially fraught investigation that he didn't have to do after already having proven himself through a lifetime of courage and service and selfless service, how depressed are you about how easily, for political purposes, people will just assassinate the character of people who don't deserve that kind of character assassination? I don't know if I'm depressed, but I'm, I am. I mean, I, I think I'm realistic about what this political moment is. And we do this at CNN. It's like, well, what do you think the impact of this? Trump debacle is, you know, his press conference with Putin at, in Helsinki, locking up those kids in cages at, at the border. Name your scandal. Everything winds up the same, 60-40 against. Every poll, no matter what it is, is roughly 60, 55, 60% of the people disapprove of Trump, 35% to 40% approve. And basically what happened was Mueller started off somewhat differently, more favorably, but it's just retreated to the mean. Brett Kavanaugh started off somewhat differently. It it retreated to the mean. It's just an illustration of the incredible tribalism of this moment where everybody on your side sees things one way and everybody on the other side sees things the other way. Do you ever look at what's going on in the country, I know you're a little bit further removed from actual practice of law than I am, but so maybe this is my uh, you know, prism. But I look at what's going on and the way arguments are made in the public, and I think to myself, how do, you, how do they get away with it? People talk about the death of expertise. There's also the death of evidence, the death of truth. In the environments in which we used to travel, if you lied and lied repeatedly and demonstrably, if you used arguments that were about race or about fear, or that didn't make any sense, or they were self-contradictory, you got thrown out of court. And 
the people who are in the position to make the decisions, whether it's a magistrate judge, a judge, a jury, an arbitrator even, those arguments and those tactics didn't prevail. And I'm not, I'm not naive enough to say, well, the court of public opinion is the same as a federal courthouse. I know it's not. But do you ever think about it from that perspective? Like, well, how is it so easy to lie this way and to cheat about truth and to cheat and be corrupt about argument and common sense, and there's no price. Let's discuss your distinguished predecessor, Rudy Giuliani. He's exhibit A of the phenomenon you're talking about. I mean, you know, look, Rudy didn't rise to the heights of being U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York, but he was an important prosecutor. And, (laughs) but, you know, he was... You know, he was controversial, but he was a very serious U.S. attorney. I mean, and they did some very important cases, and he was very effective. And, you know, as mayor of New York, sure, he was controversial, but, you know, there were a lot of things accomplished during, during his mayoralty. Now, you know, him ranting on TV about how the FBI are a bunch of thugs and, and just, you know, getting his facts all wrong. Stormtroopers. Storm Stormtroopers, right. It's a human illustration of the phenomenon you're talking about, how the partisanship has degraded his stature so much, but he's still got that 40% who thinks he's great. This is not a both-sides-do-it phenomenon. This is something that has happened on the right, that the disrespect for truth on the right, political right, is different. And, and you know... This has come up, you know, in, in the context of, of these bombings. And, you know, there was this, you know, congressman from Utah who was on bef- before me on sit room, and he was saying, you know, what I really need, you know, what we really need to do is tone down the rhetoric on both sides. You know, we need to sort of dial it back. You're, and, and that's bullshit because the, it's not, it's not, it's not Bernie Sanders who is saying, you know, it's okay to beat up journalists and that's funny. And, and you know, and I'm mentioning Bernie Sanders because you remember that crazed supporter of Bernie Sanders shot Steve Scalise and that was a terrible thing. But you, because no way you could say that Bernie Sanders encouraged that. But you listen to the way Trump talks about, you know, his opponents, they're evil, they're enemies of the people. That is a different kind of rhetoric. The recklessness and the dishonesty is, is different and it's all on his side. And, and, and I'll say that in front of any audience in Manhattan of li- all liberals. And I don't care. That shows the kind of courage I have. Maybe even L.A. Right. That's right. So, so Certain you have parts this, of Boston. Uh, this is another segue. I'm mastering the segue in this podcasting life. So you're writing a book about some of these topics, and you and I have you know, run into each other and I've asked you. I think it's a very daunting thing to write a book generally, mm-hmm. as I've just discovered. <laughs> but to be asked to write a book about events that, A, are mostly submerged, i.e. what the Mueller investigation is about, an institution that I think is very, very tight-lipped, and then also that changes day to day. So I know you're not that far into it, but I'd like to know how you even go about doing that book, and is it orders of magnitude more difficult and daunting than the other books you've done that have been backward-looking? First of all, it is very daunting, because this is the most 
buttoned up organization I have ever seen, in, in, particularly in Washington. I mean, you know, Supreme Court justices will actually talk to you. Right. <laughs> Nobody in the Mueller office will even talk to you. You know, I know some of those people, yeah. as you, as you do. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the directive went out, we don't talk for the record, we don't talk off the record, we don't have coffee, we don't have drinks, we don't talk to journalists at all. And that is without precedent in my experience. Now, can we, can we pause on that sure. for a second? Yeah. How do you feel about that as a citizen, as a journalist, as a former prosecutor? Uh, well, I have different feelings about it as all three of those things. When there is an active investigation going on, it is understandable for a, a prosecutor to say absolutely nothing. And I, and, and I respect that. Once a case has been brought, and the trial concluded, then I think that you could talk about some things. And, and you know, when I wrote about you, the insider trading cases were mostly over, uh, the Skelos and the Silver cases were, were over. So, so, I mean, th there were stuff we could talk about, but I didn't even ask you about pending investigations because I knew you, you couldn't really talk about that. So I think Mueller, you know, for example, could talk about the Manafort case, which, which is over now. But they have decided to take... The, the completely opposite task. This is frustrating to me on a day-to-day -day basis, but again, now putting on my cynical journalist book writer hat, it's actually better for me because the Mueller story now is almost completely unknown. Who are these people? What do they do? How did they investigate? No one knows. People will read a book about that. Right. You know? Um... You know, I am going to take my time. I mean, look, I got nothing to write now. Nobody's talking to me. Uh, but, you know, just journalistically, what yeah. you do is, you know, there are a lot of defense attorneys who are involved. You talk to them about their dealings with the office. You talk to witnesses about what their lives are. So, so you can sort of report around, which gives you a good background, but it's not the meat of the story. Let's jump to the Supreme Court. Okay. Did Brett Kavanaugh lie in his confirmation hearings? If, if I had, you know, based on the evidence that I have seen... Probably. As with Clarence Thomas, you know, 27 years ago, the, the scandal of the Kavanaugh nomination or the, the, the significance of it is really in the first part of the hearings, not the second part. It is that when you see what Brett Kavanaugh stands for and how he will vote as a justice, you know, what he did or did not do in high school is certainly significant and I think is disqualifying in and of itself. But, you know, if you want to talk about the Supreme Court as an institution and the decisions that will come out of the court, which ultimately is what, why the court matters, that's the real peril to me of the Kavanaugh nomination, not, you know, the fact that he, you know, has bad behavior in his background. Right. I mean, that's fair. My question about the future is this, because you invoked Clarence Thomas just now who had difficult confirmation hearing. A lot of people have very strong views about him. I do. And you wrote something interesting. You said, this is way back, early in his tenure, you wrote that Tom, uh, Justice Thomas's jurisprudence seems guided to an unusual degree by raw anger. And that anger emanated from the difficult time he had getting confirmed and the allegations made against him. And as we all saw, as Matt Damon has... Uh, <laughs> has exemplified a lot of raw anger in that second portion of the hearing 
where he made accusations against Democrats in particular, where he talked back to senators in a way that even he thought momentarily he had to apologize. Just just for one of the senators. For one of the back. Now, yeah. Yes, Amy Klobuchar, no apology to Sheldon Whitehouse. Correct. Just for those who are keeping track. But the, my question is, and obviously it's impossible to know, do you think that he is going to be influenced by his anger as you perceive Thomas was for years going forward? Probably, probably, but he's so conservative and so determined to push that agenda, it'll probably be hard to tell because he would have voted the same way anyway. The delta is not that big. There was that exchange between Senator Whitehouse, who, to his credit, became a senator by way of being United States attorney and attorney general, so he has some prosecutorial chops. And he got into this exchange that made you cringe on one hand because it was about his high school yearbook. But on the other hand, made you think, whoa, what's going on here? And Sheldon Whitehouse, to me, and maybe I'm in a minority here, when Sheldon Whitehouse, just as a pure sort of observational matter as a, as a lawyer and a prosecutor, he asked Brett Kavanaugh the question, you know, what, what's the devil's triangle? And he sort of asked it in a way, to me at least, you might ask your child who you suspect has done something bad and who will lie to you and has not been smart enough about having a higher order lie. So, you know, where were, where were you? And they're like, I was at Joey's house. Who else was there? And he's like, oh, shit, I didn't, I didn't come up with that. <laughs> what did you guys do? Like, because you and I know, right, and a lot of lawyers, simply asking questions and detail quickly explodes lies. And, and I don't know the truth, but I have a suspicion. And Sheldon Weiner said, and again, it seems unseemly, it's from high school, and it's the... What Urban Dictionary says is unfortunate. You don't, my son doesn't need to know what Urban Dictionary is. Yeah, don't, don't look at Urban Dictionary. And he says, next time, in fact, you should probably stay home and do your homework. <laughs> and he says, what's the devil's triangle? And Brett Kavanaugh looks, looks him dead in the eye. It's a card game. And then Sheldon Whitehouse says, how's it played? <laughs> and I remember thinking, you tell me what you think that this was a gambit that ended up not kind of fizzling out, but had it succeeded in the way it might with your child, who was not destined for the Supreme Court, it would have been the most explosive thing in the hearing. And so I've heard these people say, well, why are you asking about the yearbook? But I understand the mindset. You have to be thinking, this, this guy is lying about that, and it's a stupid lie, and it's in some ways a frivolous lie, but it's endemic of what this person is about, and then he asked the question, and Brett Kavanaugh looks right back at him. There's three cups, and you put them in a triangle. And then I'm like, holy cow. And then Sheldon Whitehouse says, okay, what else? So he's going you know, to the next levels. And we've all seen in court that unravel the witness very quickly. Brett Kavanaugh is like, you familiar with, he responds with a question, which is, are you familiar with quarters? Without answering in great detail, but suggesting without saying so, that it's some weird game that no one in the world has ever heard of with three cups, and you throw quarters into the cups. At that point, I guess Sheldon Whitehouse, being you know, an experienced cross-examiner, realized, you know, I'm not going to get anywhere with this guy because he is such a liar. I don't know if this was what he was thinking, but that's what I was thinking watching him. So I found that extraordinary. Well, that, well you know, and the other thing about, I remember that exchange, and the thing that was so maddening about the whole second chapter, the Dr. Ford and response testimony, was that the senators only had 10 minutes. 
And even good prosecutors can't do much with 10 minutes. Plus, Kavanaugh knew how to filibuster. And, you know, you can answer any question with two or three minutes. You know, Senator, let me put that in context. Oh, God. That, you know, eats up the time. So, I mean, as a fact-finding enterprise, that was destined to be and set up to be a standoff. Yeah. I mean, that's true of every congressional inquiry, and I led one myself. Right. There, there are multiple things, but the two things I think that cause you never to be able to get to finality or a conclusion, or depending on your perspective, truth, is A, what you just said, the time limits. Because the luxury you have in court is, you know, dude, you can filibuster for an hour, for right. two, but I'm, gonna, I'm coming back tomorrow. I'm asking the same question again. I'm going to do it again, and I have no cameras, and I don't have to worry about the public. I don't have to do any of that stuff. And the second thing is that there's no arbiter, right? You have a chairman, but you have no judge, like Judge Ellis or Judge Mukasey or Judge Rakoff or whoever, who can say to one side, you know what, that's not proper. Stop that. So all sorts of impropriety happens on, on, on every side. You never get to well, a and, and there's no one to say, answer the question. Right. If, if a witness tries to filibuster in response to, to a question in a courtroom, you know, the judge, you know, they usually try to stay a certain degree of neutral, but, but ultimately a judge says, no, you have to answer the question, and no, no one does that purpose. We're running out of time, but I want to ask you one more Supreme Court question. Okay. And then the lightning round. You said um, sort of in a, in a dramatic way, you made a prediction about how long Roe v. Wade would be the law of the land. What was that prediction? 18 months. Do you stand by that? Yep. There's a case coming now, which is the first. Indiana passed a law that said women can no longer have abortions for sex selection or, you know, a a list of reasons you can't have an abortion. Seventh Circuit struck it down as unconstitutional. That's going to be the first case that they get. They will uphold that law. And then the state representatives, they follow the news too. And South Dakota... Mississippi, Alabama, they're all just going to ban abortion and dare the courts to overturn it. And, you know, people try to sound sophisticated and they say, well, you know, John Roberts, he's going to want to do it slowly. They're going to limit Roe v. Wade, but they're not going to overturn Roe v. Wade. If you have a state that bans abortion outright, you can't uphold that law and and leave Roe v. Wade intact. And, you know, during the campaign... Donald Trump said repeatedly, I will appoint justices to the Supreme Court who will vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. And what I think he meant by that was, he will appoint justices to the Supreme Court who will overturn (laughs) Roe v. Wade. And I think that's what he's done. And, you know, elections have consequences. They do. Yeah. We're going to end on that in a minute about how important elections are. Quick lightning round. These are yes, no. They're mostly easy. All right, well... Have you ever been body slammed? No. I, want, I wrote my first sports column for the Harvard Crimson. I had a, I had a column in called Inner Tubin. Yeah. It was a good column. It, it was a good name. Often the best, uh, the best part of the column was the name. It was sort of like a George Plimpton thing. I tried out for the Harvard Boxing Club. So I was knocked down, but I was not body slammed. Have you ever body slammed someone else? No. Have you ever played Devil's Triangle? (laughs) You know, Brett Kavanaugh and I are roughly the the same age. I'm a little older. 
But as I, as I went through his um, yearbook entry, I, I guess I led a more sheltered life than I thought because <laughs> I didn't know what the hell he was talking about during a lot of that. Will, will Roger Stone be indicted? You know, that's really uh, an interesting question. I don't like to brag, but I'm kind of the Boswell of Roger Stone. <laughs> I, I, did, um, I did a profile of Roger Stone in The New Yorker, which opened in a sex club in Miami, which, uh, just parenthetically, it was the single best expense report I ever turned into The New Yorker. Uh, but... Um, no, Roger is a fascinating figure for many reasons because, you know, in most, most of life, in law enforcement, in journalism, people tend to underplay the bad things they've done and overplay the good things they've done. Roger is the opposite. Roger, like, right. pretends he did more bad stuff than he's actually done. So it's very hard to know sort of where he fits during all of this. It, it, but So... But, so- but, I will remind anyway, the witness that this is a lightning round. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> Would you like to hear so, about my so sex So is he going to be indicted? No. Uh, I, I think not, actually. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Okay, sorry. <laughs> will, you be, will you be replacing Megyn Kelly? Will I be replacing Megyn Kelly? I, I guess my knowledge that blackface is actually, like, a bad thing um, would qualify me, but no, I will not be replacing her. In the following Texas cage match... Dershowitz versus Giuliani. <laughs> Jeffrey Tubin puts his money on um, Rudy. Rudy, oh. yeah, yeah. Ru- Rudy's, uh, you know, uh, he's like he's a tougher guy. Final question. Yes. Has anyone ever finished a New Yorker article? <laughs> like. I write 7,000 words about this guy. And I couldn't twat. finish it. And this, he couldn't even... Even my dad. Yeah, even, it might have been yeah. because of the beard. He's like, it's, this it's, is very long. long. <laughs> I love you, son, but it's just too long. <laughs> um, we got we to gotta wrap up. I have a couple of final words, but before I do that, everyone, big round of applause for Jeffrey Tubin. I end the live podcast in the same way I do the regular podcast to talk about something I think is important. You know, our being here, as I said at the beginning of the show, is a significant thing. Where we are, the town hall, is a significant place. In some ways, you could say this is hallowed ground in terms of civic engagement uh, because this, this theater was founded by a group of suffragists, the League for Political Education. And what they were looking for... was a place to gather people together and educate them, hence the name of the place, the town hall, built in 1921 with democratic principles in mind. Um, the idea was that there were no you know, box seats or obstructed views. In theory, what led to the phrase, not a bad seat in the house, and I hope that that has been true. Uh, and while this bu- building was being constructed, the 19th, 19th Amendment passed and women gained the right to vote, and it became a symbol of the movement. So voting has always been important. Not everyone has always had the right to vote. Back in the time I was referring to, women didn't have the right to vote. People who do have the right to vote are not exercising it enough. And as we discussed, it's really, really important. It's never been more important. There are other whole categories of people who don't have the rights that I, virtually all of you, I guess, have. And a group of people that 
Jeffrey and I know well, people who have been incarcerated in prison. And I've mentioned this on the show a few times. There are people who, after they pay their debts to society and they try to rehabilitate and come back into society, they still are not permitted to vote, which to my mind makes no sense and is a form of injustice that makes, should make your blood boil. In Florida, there is a ballot measure that's a ballot measure that people can vote on to amend a section of the Constitution that would, that would re-enfranchise people who have been incarcerated. And it would be, I think, 1.5 million people are not able to vote in Florida. It would be one of the greatest re-enfranchisements of groups, I think, since the Civil Rights Act uh, in the 60s. So this is all just to emphasize and to reiterate because I'm a redundant lawyer guy. <laughs> Voting is important. If you have the right to vote, please use it. If you know someone in Florida or have influence in Florida, get people to vote for this so everyone has a chance to vote and decide the future of their country. There's nothing more important. Thank you. I love you. God bless you all. That's it for this live episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jeffrey Tubin. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Courtney Harrell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, and Tamara Sepper. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.